We're coming to the end of 2016, and I wanted to make an end-of-year pitch for support for the SRB podcast. Since February 2015, I've conducted over 59 interviews on topics as wide-ranging as Putinism, post-war Kiev, Belarusian nationalism, Stalinist terror, Russian punk rock, Russian porn, Soviet gypsies, and many, many more. The topics have been an eclectic mix to give as complex a picture of Eurasian history, society, and culture as I can. I've interviewed some incredibly knowledgeable people who've generously given their time to offer us all interesting and thoughtful discussions. I think it's safe to say there isn't a podcast on the region like it. Though the podcast is free to listeners, it's not free to make. The SRB podcast is a one-person operation. Each episode from start to finish takes about 15 hours to produce. Reading on average a book a week is like being back in grad school. Editing out all the ums, kind ofs, you knows, and rights take up to five to six hours alone. Then there are hosting and equipment costs. So if you like what you hear and find the discussions valuable, especially at a time where thoughtful discourse about the region is so scarce, please consider becoming a monthly patron or making a one-time donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Now on with the show. Вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I'm pleased to welcome Sophie Pinkham back to the podcast to talk about her new book, Black Square, Adventures in Post-Soviet Ukraine. I last talked to Sophie in April 2015, when she published part of her book in The New Yorker. Now that the entire book is out, I thought it would be a good idea to talk about her experiences in Ukraine over the last decade and how they've influenced her understanding of the country. Sophie Pinkham is a writer on Russian and Ukrainian culture and politics. Her articles have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, N Plus One, The London Review of Books, and Foreign Affairs, among other publications. Her new book is Black Square, Adventures in Post-Soviet Ukraine, published by Norton. Here's Sophie Pinkham. So your, your book's title, Black Square, is an obvious reference to Kazimir Malevich's famous painting. I want you to start by talking about Malevich's painting and what it symbolizes for your book. Well, I've always been very fascinated by, uh, by Malevich, by the Russian avant-garde, the Soviet avant-garde, in their ideas of sort of how time can end, how time can sort of reach a stopping point. And the painting is partially a representation of, you know, this idea that utopia will eventually become so far advanced that the world will cease to exist and that time will stop. So in that sense, I felt that it resonated in an interesting way with the now infamous, I guess, idea of the sort of of the end of history that became popular briefly after the Soviet Union fell. This idea that there's sort of a limit point uh, where history ends, where we've made as much progress as we can make as people and sort of time stops being linear, things stop changing. Um, and then at the same time, from a personal perspective, Malevich was an interesting and sort of an important figure um, in my thinking about the book, because he's he was from Kiev, uh, his parents were Polish, 
but of course he's identified as sort of a Russian painter. And yet, more recently, both the Ukrainians and the Poles have to some extent tried to sort of reclaim him as their own. Um, And his work incorporates elements drawn both from Ukrainian folk art and while still being sort of one of the most famous or the most iconic representatives of the Soviet avant-garde. So for me, Malevich is this figure that really sort of perfectly represents, first of all, the sort of crossroads of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, um, and then also this sort of multilingual, um, multicultural, we could say, multi-ethnic society, this blend uh, that exists in what's now Ukraine. Yeah, I want to have you expand on this idea of the painting representing this end of time because, and, and its relationship to the idea of the end of history, because in many respects, you positing that, that idea of the painting, what it represents is kind of ironic because if anything, it shows that, you know, the, the events that you chronicle in your, in your experiences in Russia and Ukraine, it, it suggests that, you know, history is not over at all. In fact, it's going in directions in which we didn't anticipate. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it is meant to be somewhat ironic. It's a little bit of a joke. Well, I've always felt that the the idea, you know, that idea of the end of history, that idea that, you know, history is moving inevitably towards liberal democracy and peace. For me, that has for a long time seemed like a sort of unfortunate misunderstanding or like willful, wishful thinking maybe in a similar way to the extreme sort of ultra-idealistic utopian project of the Soviet avant-garde, right? I mean, looking back on them, they seem absurd. Um, And I talk about this at some length in the book, you know, these ideas that you could banish death, that death is an artifact of bourgeois capitalism. You can do calisthenics. You can, looking back a little bit earlier in crazy Russian ideas that, you know, you can collect the dust of all of our ancestors from out of space and reconstitute all of mankind. You know, these ideas are obviously crazy. And I think, I think honestly that the idea that history is moving inevitably towards liberal democracy and peace actually, unfortunately, is also somewhat crazy in a less sort of spectacular way. But I think that it also does sort of willfully deny some darker tendencies in social development and that it is, you know, at best a very over-optimistic reading of how uh, historical progress works. And obviously, I think, especially in the last few years, we've been seeing that, you know, the process is not at all one-directional, that, you know, we're moving what we would think of as backwards in many cases, that we're moving back to sort of authoritarian forms of nationalism. Yeah, and and there's no doubt that we'll touch on that stuff today. But it's it's actually interesting that you do mention the idea of preventing death. I actually want you to talk about it more about in your own experience, because when you first went to Russia in 2004, you went to work for an NGO in Irkutsk that dealt with AIDS prevention. And in a way, a lot of your work over these years has been about preventing death. And at one point, you when you refer to the the new HIV prevention drugs um, or HIV drugs in the mid-1990s, you, you, you point to the fact that it was considered the Lazarus effect because people with HIV were able to turn through these drugs, were able to turn around and lead more or less normal lives to some extent. Um, and you've accumulated a lot of experience working in AIDS and HIV prevention and awareness in Russia and Ukraine since. And it's, it's interesting because 85% of registered HIV cases, and I emphasize registered, uh, in the post-Soviet world are in Russia and Ukraine. And just last week, Vadim Perkovsky, the head of Russia's Federal AIDS Center, stated that Russia's registered, again, 
registered HIV infection population is growing by 10% a year. And now there are over 1 million registered cases in the country. So talk about uh, AIDS in Russia and Ukraine and your work there over the years. Well, for me, the the AIDS epidemic is in some sense, in Russia especially, but also globally, um, the spread of the AIDS epidemic is sort of one of the starkest. And for me, you know, because I worked in this field, one of the most painful examples of the discrepancy between what is possible for us as human beings, just from a technological or from a medical perspective, and what we actually managed to achieve. You know, because for a while, this was an epidemic we did, it arrived or it seemed to arrive suddenly. We didn't know what it was at first in the 80s. We didn't understand how it was spread. But it's really remarkable how quickly and, you know, and with the, with the very, very, very active participation of, um, of activists, like ACT UP in the United States, especially with the help of activists who were pushing really hard for research and for new treatment methods, it's incredible how quickly science was able to catch up with that, how quickly it was able to understand it, how quickly it was able to develop treatments, which at this point are very effective, right? HIV can be managed as a chronic disease. It's not great to have it. Obviously, the treatment doesn't always work. There are a lot of side effects, but you know, you, you take your medicine, you live your life, it's okay. And we understand very well from a technical perspective, how to prevent HIV, although, of course, there are so many social factors that make it more difficult. But the, the sort of failure to, put, to translate that knowledge into effective action, and especially the unwillingness just to pay for the drugs and for the social programs that would be needed to prevent the spread of HIV and then to help people who already have HIV is dizzying. And I find it especially painful in the case of Russia, because as I write in the book, you know, Russia's HIV epidemic arrived much later. So by the time that HIV really started spreading in Russia, and it was, and also in Ukraine, it was primarily through injecting drug use at first. By the time it started spreading, the world knew what HIV was, the world knew how HIV was transmitted, and it would be, you know, very soon, the world would also start to have quite effective treatments for HIV. But, you know, in the early 90s, most importantly, they knew how it was spread and they knew that it was spread through needle sharing. And they also knew that, you know, it was possible to have needle exchange programs as well as drug treatment programs that would help prevent that, right? And with, you know, with harm reduction, as we call reduction of drug-related harm, which includes um, needle exchange, methadone and buprenorphine programs for opiate users and other interventions, People, people don't really want to share needles most of the time. I mean, it's, it's sort of harder with unprotected sex because there are obviously so many great reasons to have unprotected sex, including, you know, procreation. But there are a lot of pretty clear incentives and a lot of cultural norms and a lot of sort of romantic or relationship expectations that push people to not use condoms, right? But with needles, you don't really want to share needles, it's better, it's, you know, as, a, as an injecting drug user, it's better to inject with a clean needle. The needle is sharper. It works better. You're less likely to hurt yourself. There, <laughs> there are far fewer sort of benefits to sharing needles. So generally speaking, if you make clean needles very accessible to people, people will not share needles for the most part, right? So especially these kinds of epidemics among injecting drug users are really preventable. They're so preventable. And Russia could... Russia should have known that, right? Ukraine should have known that. Um, but they chose to 
take an approach um, that, you know, treated drug users as, you know, social parasites, treated drug users as people who were moral failures, um, as people who didn't deserve help, as people who didn't deserve treatment. Um, and they didn't, uh, they didn't implement these kinds of programs. And what happened, we now have this huge HIV epidemic in Russia that never, never needed to happen, never should have happened. We knew what to do to prevent it and it hasn't been prevented and it's still not being prevented. And in fact, you know, of course, Russia, unlike Ukraine, which has been, you know, ranging between sort of tolerating harm reduction programs and now actually actively, you know, supporting a lot of programs for uh, people with HIV. But in contrast, Russia has actively prevented people from preventing HIV. Um, and it's now almost impossible to, you know, to do harm reduction programs in Russia. It's, quite unsafe for the people who are providing those services. And so you have this con this continuous growth of the HIV epidemic in Russia. It just doesn't have to be happening. And it's totally tragic. And another thing too, and you point out this in the book, um, but it, it's also a general story, I think, of HIV AIDS throughout the world. And it certainly was the case in the United States. And, and thanks to a lot of the activism of groups like ACT UP, is that they fought to remove the taboo of the disease or the taboo of the person who has the disease. But in Russia, um, it becomes quite clear that, especially, I, I can't really say too much about Ukraine, but in Russia, it becomes quite clear, especially in your book, that that taboo continues to play a major role in identifying and also treating people who are uh, HIV positive. Uh, talk about the nature of this taboo and how it works. Um, well, I mean, there's a there's a great stigma against people who have HIV still, I mean, you know, they're treated, they're spoken about oftentimes as, you know, sort of being dirty or being carriers of illness. And, you know, there are plenty of sort of derisive words used in Russian for people with HIV. But, but especially when you have HIV uh, epidemics that are concentrated among, you know, what we call in HIV jargon, marginalized populations, so among drug users and among men who have sex with men, among sex workers, um, there's sort of an interaction of stigmas, right? So there's not only the stigma of having HIV, but there's also the stigma of being an injecting drug user or of being gay, especially. And actually in, in Russia, as we know, uh, there's such intense, I would say, state-sponsored homophobia at this point that actually, and I haven't been, I should say that I haven't been working in HIV, uh, in HIV services in the last few years, but, but I imagine it's still the same or getting worse given the government's policies towards gays and lesbians. But the, actually the stigma of being gay can be greater than the stigma of having HIV. And is certainly, I would say, actually greater than the stigma of injecting drugs because injecting drug use has been so prevalent in Russia. For various reasons. Yeah, so people don't want to go to the doctor. They don't want to get health services. They don't want to tell other people about it. They don't want to tell their partners. And their fears are well-grounded, especially in Russia, where you have sort of vigilante campaigns against gay men. It's, it's very frightening. So it's not surprising that people don't have, you know, good access to health services. Although even if they didn't feel afraid to admit their status as members of whichever group, whether or not they would get decent services once they got there is in question. And when I worked in HIV prevention, 
you know, there were so many stories of just awful mistreatment by, uh, by medical providers, unfortunately. Yeah, which was one reason that it was so important in the development of, of harm reduction to have, to have non-governmental organizations, especially non-governmental organizations that were made up of people who themselves were HIV positive, who themselves had histories of injecting drug use, or who, who were gay, who were LGBT, because those people obviously have a, have a different attitude towards what we would call the target population and were willing, you know, would speak to them as people, wouldn't berate them, wouldn't give them moralizing lectures, would just, you know, genuinely try to help them and could find a common language. Um, so that, in my experience, was, you know, incredibly valuable. Now, your, your overarching narrative of your work uh, in, in NGOs in the region is, is one on the one hand of a repeated sense of frustration, I, I think, comes out. And, and, but at the same time, as you, as you said, with the people who are working in NGOs to do um, HIV work, do represent um, many dedicated people who are having real impacts on people's lives. I mean, it's striking how many times you note people saying, both in Russia and Ukraine, that, you know, this organization saved my life. You know, this organization trans, uh, transformed me. And and also you get, I get the sense and from the book a, a a good level of personal accomplishment on your part in in working in this. What what are your reflections on working in NGOs in the region, both from the perspective working with Western sponsors and with locals, and the general role of civil society in the politics of Russia and Ukraine. Um, so with NGOs in Russia and Ukraine, it's it's sort of a mixed story. So on one hand, I think that especially, you know, AIDS, AIDS prevention programs, harm reduction programs in these countries, as in many countries around the world, have literally saved many people's lives. And I have heard countless stories of people who said, you know, I was going to die. Literally, I was going to die. And then I met the social workers from this organization and they helped me and they took me to the doctor and, you know, and now I'm alive and I'm, I'm thriving in many cases, right? It's, it's often, you, you see these stories of remarkable transformation. There's a little bit like, I mean, sometimes it is, you know, literally what I describe in terms of people who are dying of AIDS and then get access to antiretroviral drugs in time and then seem to sort of make the path back from death into life, right? And you can see the same thing with, with drug users sometimes when people are using really, really heavily and they're suffering a lot of illnesses in relation to drug use. But these people also can go back. I, on my last trip to Ukraine, I met an amazing guy who had been in prison. He was HIV positive, a heavy drug user. He met some social workers in prison um, and they sort of helped him get off drugs and helped him get into HIV treatment. And I think he went to law school after that and is now the sort of high level HIV and harm reduction policy advocate in Ukraine and has children and a nice family. And um, he's doing fantastically well and is, you know, not only doing well personally, but also really contributing a lot to society, I would say. So that's such, those stories are so uh, are so powerful and are so important. And I think that there absolutely needs need to be mechanisms that can support these types of organizations. But on the other hand, obviously, having these programs, which I think are essential, you know, I think that these, these programs should be paid for by governments. They're indispensable. They're not add-ons. They're not gifts. They're not charity. They're things that just should be existing in all societies according, according to the levels of need. And having to have rich foreigners who decide for whatever reason that they're going to fund these programs for whatever period of time fits into their sort of strategic plans, I think 
it's obviously much, much better than nothing. It's infinitely better than nothing. But ideally, this is not the way things would work. And for the people on the ground who, you know, the sort of Russians or the Ukrainians or whoever they are who are working at NGOs, it's very hard for them to sort of keep healthy organizations going using grants from charitable organizations, especially foreign charitable organizations. So in Russia, for example, now, you know, they have these foreign agents laws, they've drastically restricted foreign funding. So those organizations, a lot of them, I think, have shut down. They don't have access to funds. Obviously, the Russian government isn't paying for harm reduction. And then even in a country like Ukraine, where um, the government isn't, you know, isn't stopping foreign funders, it's very difficult because these organizations have to live sort of year to year. They don't have sustainable funding. They often don't sort of have operating budgets. They only have service budgets. There are sort of fashions in philanthropy. So, you know, if you're unlucky and philanthropists decide to focus on advocacy instead of service provision, then suddenly you're stuck in an organization that's, that has, you know, for example, a mobile harm reduction van that goes around visiting people on the streets and giving out needles, and suddenly you don't know where you're going to get the money for that from. What do you do? This is not a great way to do things, and it's not a good way to be treating these local NGO workers who, you know, often it's, it's really their life's work. And I've also heard stories about people who even, you know, there will be a some scandal in the global fund to fight HIV and some, you know, some corruption problem at a very high level. And then they'll pause the funding for, you know, six months. And then the NGO workers on the ground don't know what to do, right? They stop getting salaries. They don't have their rent anymore. And I have heard stories of people who kept giving services out of, you know, their mom's basement and kept working for free and sort of patched things together because a lot of these people are really passionate about their work. And I think that they deserve to have you know, steady salaries and to feel like they can see their organization continuing five years from now, even if whichever philanthropic organization sort of moves on to another region or uh, moves on to another topic. Yeah, this this seems to be in, in my uh, observations of NGOs and relationships to funders, particularly if the funders are from abroad, there sometimes is this contradiction that happens where the locals, of course, have a better sense of what they need and what to do to address a particular problem. But funders have their own interests and their own agendas in providing money for particular things that they're interested in. How does this work out, uh, this relationship work, since you've kind of worked on both sides of, of this of this relationship? How does this relationship influence NGO work in the region? I think it's quite frustrating for a lot of NGO workers, and I think that it has an unintended negative effect, which is that it um, it tends to give an advantage to, to NGO workers who are willing to just tell the donors what they want to hear, and oftentimes to the NGO workers who speak English, because a lot of times, you know, they'll be dealing with grant managers who aren't fluent in the local languages. And obviously, the people who are willing to tell donors what they want to hear and speak English are not necessarily the same group of people who are, you know, powerful advocates in their local communities and are genuinely passionate about what they're doing. And especially when you're dealing with marginalized groups, you know, they're less likely to sort of, you know, to have studied foreign languages to be able to sort of find a common language, whether literally or metaphorically with funders. So they're at a certain disadvantage. I think it's hard because the priorities end up being dictated from above, strategies end up being dictated from above, even though 
when you see how local advocacy works, it's so incredibly context specific. You know, it's not only that it has to be shaped according to a country's situation or a country's laws. Often it has to do just with personal relationships at the local level, right? You know, what is your city aid center director like? And I would say that a lot of the NGO workers who that I've seen who have been most effective have been the ones who are able um, to sort of capitalize on personal relationships the best, who are sort of the most adept at maneuvering through all the sort of specifics of local politics and so on. And for them, I think it can be very frustrating to be constrained by a strategy or a sort of programmatic approach that's imposed from an international donor and that doesn't take those specifics uh, into consideration. Now, now, one of the things that's interesting about your book that stands out is your experience in struggling with and your appreciation of the Russian language. Um, and I, of course, this, this, uh, I think all of us who've studied Russian, um, can relate to this. Um, I, I struggle with the language all the time. Uh, it drives me quite crazy. But, and you repeatedly tell the, your reader about learning Russian. I mean, through several points in the book, you, you mentioned that you're taking Russian language instruction from this person and that person. You speak about reading Russian literature and you reflect on some of that literature. And, and in your, your experience in Ukraine speaking Russian, you, you point it out and you appreciate Ukraine's linguistic tolerance and pluralism and cosmopolitanism when it comes to language. So what place does language have for you in your experience in understanding both Russia and Ukraine and the relationship to one another? Well, I mean, for me, sort of starting not at the beginning, uh, for me, one of the painful, one of the many sort of painful aspects of the of the conflict and the sort of propaganda war, if you will, that came as a result of the Maidan revolution was the idea that there was a war between Ukrainian speakers and Russian speakers. And for me as someone who lived in Ukraine and has, you know, I feel I feel a sort of stronger connection. I have stronger personal ties to Ukraine than I do to Russia. I lived in Ukraine for several years. I've spent less time, relatively speaking, in Russia, and I didn't sort of put down roots in Russia the way I did in Ukraine. But I spoke, I spoke Russian in Ukraine. One of my Russian teachers in Ukraine is actually half Ukrainian and half Georgian, but he was teaching me Russian. And I found it so much easier, to actually, to learn Russian in Ukraine because, you know, Ukraine is, despite what many propagandists of many political persuasions will tell you, Ukraine is a bilingual or really a multilingual society in which most most people are bilingual. You know, a lot of people, most people privilege one language over the other. Uh, some are perfectly fluent in both Russian and Ukrainian. Others know even more languages. A lot of people speak Polish. You know, I know people who speak up to five languages from Ukraine. And I think that that is something to be celebrated and to be enjoyed. There's one thing I write about is the mixture of Russian and Ukrainian, which is called Sujik. And I was always fascinated by that. I found it really interesting. I think partly because I'm from New York, which is, of course, such a multilingual city. I think it's exciting when people blend languages. I think it's interesting. I think it's sort of a sign of cultures that are coming together and that are finding ways to coexist and that are producing new things from that coexistence. So for me, it's something really positive. And I've never... I don't know. I've never really understood people who stig who stigmatize the mixture of Russian and Ukrainian. 
um, who sort of look at it as a debased language, right? I don't believe in I don't believe in that idea that you know one form of language is better than the other. Um, if you're communicating, I think that that's good. If you can find a common language, I think that it's you know fine for you to be taking lexical items <laughs> from different standardized lang- uh, from different standardized languages. So, yeah, so for me living in Ukraine and sort of reading signs in Ukrainian, absorbing Ukrainian sort of from the environment, speaking in Russian, um, but often, you know, listening in Ukrainian was a very interesting experience. The last time I was in Ukraine, uh, I was talking to this guy who I vaguely knew and I spoke to him in Russian because I sort of don't actively speak Ukrainian. And he said, you know, after Maidan, I'm speaking only Ukrainian, but you understand Ukrainian. And I was like, yes. Uh, and he was like, so you'll speak Russian and I'll speak Ukrainian. And I was like, great, that's fine. I'm totally, I'm totally happy with that. And it was fine. Then we, you know, we chatted and, uh, and it was nice. Like you speak your language, I'll speak mine. And let's just agree that we understand each other. Um, and there are, you know, there aren't so many uh, cultural situations in which, in which that can happen. And I find it sort of deeply, deeply interesting and, um, and, and pleasant actually. Uh, when that happens. And I really, I really dislike the sort of ideological view that, you know, Ukraine is for Ukrainian speakers, or that, you know, if you don't speak the ideal form of Russian, then, you know, you're an uneducated degenerate, or people in Russia who would tease me for speaking Russian with a Ukrainian accent, and things like this. So yes, I'm for pluralism. And what about your reading of Russian literature while you're going through this experience of living in Ukraine? And and it's interesting to me because several of the people, or I don't know, several, but some of the people you do point out that you are reading are these people that occupy this ambiguous place. Um, here I'm thinking of Isak Babel, for example, who you know is from Ukraine, writes about Ukraine, but doesn't is is claimed or or can be positioned as both a Russian author or a Ukrainian author. He goes beyond that divide. So what does this literature also, how did this literature speak to you? Well, it's actually, it's interesting that you mentioned Babel because, so he was someone who I really, whose writing I really fell in love with before I knew any Russian. And certainly before I knew anything about Ukraine, I just started reading him and just sort of loved his work and loved his style. Um, and then was very excited to start reading him in Russian. And as, as I mentioned in the book, it was sort of funny because he uh, sometimes writes, he's of course from Odessa, um, and writes often about sort of the Jewish community in Odessa. And they speak this sort of Yiddish-inflected Russian, right, where the, the syntax is recognizable from the Yiddish-inflected English that I, as a New Yorker, am somewhat used to hearing um, and I do remember actually being in the Odessa cemetery and looking, walking through it with two of my friends who also live in New York and who are Russian Jews and looking at it. And it was all sort of all the um, all the surnames of my elementary school teachers and people I had grown up with because so many Odessa Jews had emigrated, um, had emigrated to New York. So that was very familiar. I felt this familiarity as a New Yorker who had grown up among a lot of sort of Eastern European Jews. So that was interesting. And then in terms of the Russian-Ukrainian divide, you know, I think I think that uh, that Babel should be allowed to be Babel, just like Bulgakov should be allowed to be Bulgakov. Yeah, another example. I hate this yeah. idea. Yeah, or Malevich, yeah, mm-hmm. that Malevich or should be Bolton. allowed to be Malevich. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, oh, well, that's a 
that's one of the best examples. Yeah, Google should be Google. I, I hate this idea that um, that writers are owned by a nationality, you know, that they can retroactively be taken possession of by a nation state that sort of has has nothing to do with them and that they would probably really hate. <laughs> I, you know, I think just as I think that people should be free to sort of choose their language and and choose the way they speak. I don't I don't believe in sort of linguistic prescriptivism. I also think that, you know, writers should be free to be themselves even retroactively. And I think that the the mixture of cultures that you see in Babel and Bulgakov in Gogol is something that's sort of exciting. It's one of the pleasures of their work and that trying to reduce that uh, or trying to make them retroactive nationalists, trying to claim them is does a disservice to their literary achievement. Now, many of the people you meet and befriend in Ukraine are, for the lack of a better term, marginals. And, and by that, I, be, I mean people who are living and working on the margins of society. And here you have people from NGOs, work, NGO workers, drug addicts, AIDS patients, artists, musicians, homosexuals, uh, this whole array of people. And, and, and I have to say that your portrayal of them is incredibly humanizing. I mean, they're, they're complex and they trans, your description of them, tra- they transcend their particular marginality. So I, I really appreciate that about the book. But what do these people reflect about Ukrainian society rather than, you know, you're not necessarily portraying quote unquote normal or average Ukrainian here, but what does the margins reflect about Ukrainian society to you? Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, as and this is something I address in the book a lot, especially in the case of, of drug users. We, we call them marginalized communities, and they are, you know, they are socially marginalized in many ways, obviously. But the fact is that injecting drug use was incredibly prevalent in, especially mostly in the '90s, and it was very much about this sort of violent rupture after the end of the Soviet Union, about the sense, especially for younger people, that you know, the world was in chaos. It was tremendously stressful. Institutions seemed to have collapsed. There was no sense of sort of what would be in the future of how society would look in 10 years. Um, and there were a lot of drugs that were very cheap. There was, I think that there was sort of this carnival atmosphere, almost like a, I don't know, party like it's 1999 atmosphere in some sense, combined, of course, unfortunately, with a, a tremendous lack of understanding of you know, what could happen as a consequence of injecting drug use or of heavy drug use. But so for me, interacting with people, especially who had started using drugs during the 90s in that wave, that sort of post-Soviet wave, was a way of understanding that experience of social rupture, of sort of social trauma, of, of a violent break and what that does to sort of individuals. Um, and that's a that's a big theme that I was trying to address in the book, and that that's always fascinated me ever since I started going there. Was sort of how do very large scale political or historical transformations express themselves in the lives of individuals? Yeah, this is by the way a major interest of my own too. So yeah, yeah, we could we could talk about that on another day. But and now the my in Maidan revolution, it had an enormous impact on on many of your friends and acquaintances in Ukraine. What did the revolution mean for them? And and how did these meanings shape your understanding of this event? Um, well, so Maidan, I would say, was a second kind of sort of total transformation, total rupture for a lot of people, especially the people who were most actively involved. 
And it was a sort of strange moment where it seemed like people were turning into sort of different versions of themselves. And that's how they felt too. Uh, they felt a lot of the people I interviewed for the book, a lot of my friends that I talked to felt that they had a new understanding of their society, felt that they were relating to each other in a new way. Um, oftentimes it was positive, especially in the earlier days of Maidan. People described feeling this tremendous connection, this sense that, you know, the sense that we're united, that we have shared goals, that we're going to achieve something new, that we're going to make a better society together, that, you know, it's sort of neighbor helping neighbor. We're no longer atomized, but we're unified. So it was tremendously positive, especially in the early days of Maidan. But then as sort of things became more violent, as things became more divisive, as the sort of political propaganda from Russia, but also, you know, from the Ukrainian side, as it sort of ramped up, there was a sense of divisiveness. And so a lot of people at the time, and I'm sure you saw this as someone who is sort of on Russian world Facebook, there's sort of these these mass unfriendings, right? <laughs> and that's on Facebook, that's one of the more, most trivial uh, sort of manifestations of it. Yeah, lines were drawn. And I know a lot of people who sort of stopped speaking to each other, even within families, um, you know, siblings who stopped speaking to each other because they sort of fell on different sides in terms of their feeling about what happened at Maidan and afterwards. And then there was this, you know, a literal divide uh, and a blockade and front line uh, that came between eastern Ukraine and the rest of the country. And of course, that cut off Crimea. And that really isolated people as well. And and it's been interesting. It's been often really painful and really sad but it's been interesting to see how those transformations um, in terms of people's sort of ideas of themselves and their understandings of the world um, have continued to unfold in the years since Maidan. You know, some people I know have become sort of very, I would say, hardline Ukrainian nationalists. Other people, you know, feel extremely disillusioned by sort of what, what followed Maidan, you know, people who feel alienated by the sort of more nationalistic or I would say jikoistic elements of post-Maidan Ukrainian politics, people who are disturbed by the far right in Ukraine. So it's it's unfolded in different ways, but I would say that it's it's affected almost everyone very profoundly. And that's not even to speak of the people who are displaced. On my last on my last trip to Ukraine actually, I was doing some interviews with uh, this amazing group of mostly women who had been running um, a harm reduction organization that was composed, you know, mostly of people with HIV and um, former drug users in Donetsk. And most of them now have left. Uh, we went and visited one woman who's just, who's living in this sort of basement halfway house with her daughter in Odessa. Cause that's the only place that she could find where she could live. You know, she's a, she's a displaced person, but she's continuing to do this harm reduction work and a lot of her colleagues relocated themselves to Kramatorsk, uh, which is on the Ukrainian-controlled side now. And they keep doing their harm reduction program. And unbelievably, they have managed they managed to keep, it's not just them, but a few other NGOs as well. And it was with the help of the all-Ukrainian network of people living with HIV. But they managed to maintain ARV treatment for patients in eastern Ukraine throughout the blockade. So for the whole time, they actually managed to prevent any ARV interruptions by essentially smuggling ARVs across the front line. And it was, you know, mostly, it was just mostly women. It would be like a couple of women in a car with these big boxes of medication. And they would, you know, whether sweet talk or bribe their way through or cry. There was one story about a woman who just sat herself down 
on the front. They said that they wouldn't let her through with the medications unless she paid a huge bribe. She didn't have the money. And she just sort of sat down at the the border crossing point with the medication. She just said, I'm not going to get up until you let me through. And finally, they let her through. So there were there's these stories of just unbelievable sort of stoicism and heroism and persistence. And now it looks like they have sort of a more institutionalized way of, uh, of maintaining ARV treatment, which I hope will keep going, because obviously not everyone who has HIV, who is living in eastern Ukraine, is able to leave uh, or willing to leave. And you don't want those people to lose treatment. Obviously, there's not a functioning medical system in eastern Ukraine. Now, another major theme of your book is about the struggle for identity. You know, what is Ukraine? Not, not only in a geopolitical sense, but internally with its multilingual and multi-ethnic populations and how it relates to its historical past, both as a nation, and here I mean its national history or its nationalist history or the na- nationalist history that the nationalists want to project, and as an imperial subject. And here its relationship as part of the Russian Empire and then Soviet Empire. What insights did your experiences give you on this question of Ukrainian identity and how it's transformed over these years? Well, I would say this obviously goes back again to the question of sort of how you how you feel about pluralism. Um, and I am in general not I find it interesting, but I, I can't say that I have a lot of personal enthusiasm for for sort of romantic nationalism. You know, the idea that your national identity is something that comes from the black earth and rises through your soul and is, you know, carried from your ancestors, even before there was such a thing as Ukraine or whichever country you're talking about. I am not, I do not adhere to that philosophy. And I, and I don't, I really don't, I don't feel positively towards attempts to form national identity from above. I think it's very harmful also when, for example, as is happening in Ukraine, you have an institute of national memory and you have a guy who's Vietrovich, who's aggressively imposing his idea of sort of what Ukraine's history is and isn't on people who you know don't haven't necessarily studied history, who don't have a sense of what actually happened, um, who aren't, you know, reading foreign monographs and so on. I think it's harmful and I think that it it has real negative effects because people have different understandings of history, people have different understandings of their sort of cultural identity, and especially in Ukraine, but I think in many countries, there's sort of a spectrum, you know, people have different relationships to language, it's not a binary thing necessarily, people have different understandings of, you know, what was the Soviet Union, how negatively or how nostalgically do they feel about it, and I, I think that people should be a should be given, you know, free access to f- factual information about historical events, but also that they should sort of be allowed to, you know, to to have their own feelings about history and to have their own understandings. I think that they should be given space for that, and they shouldn't be told, you know, if you don't speak Ukrainian, you're not a real patriot, or if you ever say that Upa was involved in war crimes, then you're an agent of Kremlin propaganda, and so on. You know, I think that this is wrong and I think that it's harmful. And, and finally, your book is, it's part of, partly a memoir and, and partly an ethnography um, of your experiences in, in the region over the, these last 12 years. Uh, what do you want your reader to see through your eyes about the many people you meet and befriend in, in Ukraine in particular? Well, I mean, I think that working, working and studying in the sort of post-Soviet sphere 
as you know, there's so there's still such a prevalence of this sort of, I don't know, grand strategy mentality, right? Um, I mean, so much of so much in the U.S. media of what we hear about in relation to Russia is just about, you know, Putin, evil Putin, monstrous Putin. How did Putin get this way? What's going on in his mind? When is he going to try to kill us all? You know, and that's not to say that I, that I think that Putin is a nice man. I think that he's no, he's not a he's not a super villain. Yeah, he's not a supervillain. And also, you know, the Russian society is very complex and very rich. So is Ukrainian society. And I think that it's important that people have a sense that these that these foreign places are populated by real people who have a diversity of experiences and who are sort of subjects in in various senses, um, who experience history, who experience politics, who experience economic or political transition in different ways, and who sort who express themselves sort of socially or politically in different ways. It's not just about sort of gas deals. It's not just about Putin. There there are real people here. And I wanted to to sort of give American readers or foreign readers a glimpse into that sort of street level experience, that personal experience, and also to write about what it's like to be a foreigner living in these, living in these places, meeting people, developing relationships with people, not just sort of being a journalist who goes and gets quotes in crowds, right, without any context of who they're talking to or of how that person has changed over time, not just being sort of a foreign, quote unquote, expert who comes to give people lectures or, or, you know, who comes to assess what Ukraine's relationship with Vladimir Putin's Russia will be in five years and so on, but who actually sort of allows themselves to, to experience something personal and to relate to people over a longer term. And that was something that I wanted to accomplish in the book. And I was definitely very influenced by all of the reading that I had done um, when I, at the time when I worked in public health of ethnographies of drug users, of people with HIV, um, of NGOs also. I've always been really fascinated by ethnography. And I think it's a really, um, it's a really important discipline. And I think that it's something that uh, can go a huge way towards bringing people to a more complex and a more sort of humane understanding of other societies, of other groups, of marginalized communities. That was Sophie Pinkham, a writer on Russian and Ukrainian culture and politics. Her new book is Black Square, Adventures in Post-Soviet Ukraine, published by Norton. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who contributed. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and Soundcloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.
Come too soon Fade 